Moving from a familiar instructional format such as lectures to a more active learning environment can be daunting. In this episode, we share the story of one faculty member who fully flipped her classes and embraced active learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Patricia Gregg. Trish is an assistant professor of geophysics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Today's teas are... I am drinking a peppermint decaf tea. In what looks like a very nice handmade mug. Yes, this was made last summer at the YMC of the Rocky Camp in Colorado. My tea today is a Arnie's and Sons chocolate mint. Mm. And I have a Prince of Wales tea today. We've invited you here to talk about some of the active learning techniques that you've used in your class and also a little bit about how you use a flipped classroom approach. But before that, could we talk a little bit about your own experience in science classes and whether active learning was common while you were a student? I was thinking about this, and it's interesting because it's sort of a yes or no type of situation. Geosciences in general is a fun major in that we pull together a lot of different disciplines. So you have chemistry and physics and math and computer science, and you're using those all in applied ways to understand the structure and evolution of the earth. And so our classes typically have a lecture-based meeting time and then a laboratory that's associated with it. So when I was matriculating, most of my classes, there would be three one-hour meetings throughout the week where we'd be lectured at, and then we'd have a three-hour laboratory class at some point during the week or a field experience that would help to apply some of the knowledge that we gained in the passive learning setting. But then as you get at higher levels and things become more theoretical, it really did switch to more of this passive learning mode. And I don't want to age myself, but I matriculated a while ago, so I didn't ever really experience these new active learning techniques that have become so much more widely adopted nowadays. So even through graduate school, most of the classes were me sitting passively scribbling furiously to try to take notes as quickly as I could while a professor lectured and basically tried to stuff as much knowledge into my brain as possible. So I didn't really know a lot about the types of things that you can do to engage learners until after I was out of that student mode. But yeah, geology is cool, though, because you still do have active portions where you get to go on field trips with your professors and they show you things in the field and you apply that knowledge directly. But in the classroom, it really was sort of divided. Like, this is your passive lecture that you're going to sit and listen to and you may never get called on through the entire semester. And then here's your lab where you'll look at a microscope and look at hand samples or do other types of things that are a little more active. What motivated you to do something different in your own classroom? As a graduate student, I really didn't have a chance to do a teaching assistantship. I was on fellowships through most of my PhD time. So I knew that I was woefully underprepared for entering academia and teaching my own classes. So 
So as a postdoc, I applied to this call that I saw out by the Center for Astronomy Education. And it was in 2011, they had this course called Improving College General Education in Earth Astronomy and Space Science through active engagement. And I saw the ad for this course and I thought, oh, this sounds great. And then I saw that it was three days in Hawaii and I said, oh man, I must apply to this. (laughs) (laughs) And so I applied and it was mostly astronomy graduate students and postdocs. And the workshop was run by Ed Prather and Gina Brissenden out of the University of Arizona through the Center for Astronomy Education. And they had been doing all this amazing research about how to engage students in 100 level classes, mainly for the idea that they would sort of entrain new majors and new science students. But it was just a mind blowing experience. I, for the first time, learned what Think Pair Share was. I'd never heard of that before. We did lecture tutorials. I didn't even know that was a thing. They did all of these like voting and role playing and these different pedagogical things that I didn't even know it existed. And they used them on us throughout the workshop. So we were learning about these techniques through them actively using us as guinea pigs. And then we each had the opportunity to sort of develop a little module. They gave us specific astronomy, like 101 type things that we would be teaching. And we got to teach the other workshop participants and get feedback immediately on things that we didn't do so well and things that we could improve on. But it really just blew my mind. I think that was one of the most transformative experiences for me because up to that point, all the experiences that I had had been very research focused and how to improve as a scientist and how to improve my research approach. But I'd never had an opportunity to actually learn how to teach and how to teach effectively. So yeah, I credit that three-day workshop in Hawaii, which was awesome (laughs) to be in Hawaii is just sort of changing my entire worldview on how education can be and how I could be a better educator. Had it not been for the Center for Astronomy Education, I don't know what I would be doing now. So I think what I took away from it more than anything is that not every student is going to learn simply through lecture, passive engagement type of situation. And I was fortunate that I seemed to do well in that mode, but It was amazing. I loved that workshop. It was great. It sounds really transformative, but the one takeaway that I hear is next time we want a faculty member to change what they're doing, we just need to woo them to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to admit that being a postdoc gave me some flexibility in that regard. So (laughs) yeah, when I saw that call, I was like, oh, I want to do that. Three days in Hawaii. I took my mom with me and she hung out and snorkeled during the day while I was in workshop. It was wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the techniques that you've used in your classes? The first semester that I taught, I was given a class that had already been developed and it was sort of easing me into that mode of becoming the head lecturer of a course. So I didn't really have a lot of wiggle room to change the curriculum yet because I was still sort of learning how one gets in front of a class and does things. And so in that first term, I started to use some of the approaches that I had experienced through the Center for Astronomy Education and sort of trickled them into my class. I used lecture tutorials and think, pair, share a lot during that term. And then I even used some small group activities and jigsawing to try to figure out ways that I could engage the students. And it was sort of a perfect situation to get my feet wet because 
I had this scaffolding of a well-developed course where I could put in some of my own ideas and try them out. And if things weren't working, I could get immediate feedback from the students and change my trajectory. I was also really fortunate that the students were super kind to me. It was my very first time teaching. I told them straight out. I was very communicative throughout the course. Every time I tried something new, I'd say, okay, we're going to try this. I don't know if it will work, but this is why I'm doing it. And the students were sort of brought in as collaborators in that process. So they didn't see me as sort of this professor that was telling them, oh, you're going to do this, this, and this, and just follow along and trust me blindly. They realized that I was trying to learn how best to teach them. And so they were very helpful. And when things didn't work, they're like, yeah, that didn't work. (laughs) And then when things went well, they say, oh, I really liked that. And even after that semester, I'd get emails from students. They do a lot of journal reading and science reviews. And one of the students had emailed me over the summer and said, oh, that really helped. At my first job, they asked me to review some literature and I was able to use the template that you provided in class and what we did as groups to do that for my job. And so I gained a lot of confidence through that process. And then after that first term, I started looking around campus to see if there were faculty development potential to help me to do a better job of developing my next courses. Because while that one had already been developed, I was then sort of slated to develop three new courses, which would be mine. And I'd have to start from scratch and really think about how I wanted to develop my teaching as a portfolio. So one of the things that I really wanted to try was this idea of flipping. And mainly it came from a place that I didn't enjoy lecturing. I would get bored hearing myself talk. Like there would be times where I'm up there at the dry erase board writing out things. And then suddenly I forget what I was saying because mentally I'd fallen asleep at that point. Like, all right, I've been talking so long. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. And I enjoyed the parts where we were actively learning as a group so much more. That was so exciting to me where the students were doing things hands-on and I could walk around and help them to gain more insight on what they were working on. So I contacted the Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning on campus and looked at the different things that they had available. And one of the facilities that they had advertised on their page was the Illinois iFlex classroom. So this is the Illinois Flexible Learning Experience classroom. And I was able to get some training on how to use iFlex classrooms from Dr. Ava Wolf here on campus. And that also then immediately changed my perspective of how teaching could be because these were classrooms where all of the tables were on wheels so you could move them around. They had monitors that students could plug in their computers or laptops, iPads or whatever too, so that they could do collaborative learning. And she showed me some of the things that other faculty members were doing in these flexible spaces. And it helped me to be inspired to think about what sorts of things I could do. So as I started to develop my next class, I was like, all right, I want to be able to use the computing facilities. I want to be able to use these flexible classroom configurations. And I really want it to be flipped. So the first time I taught a flipped class, I recorded lectures and put them online and naively thought my students are going to watch them and they're going to do the readings and they're going to come to class prepared. And I did not have the assessment structured as such that the students had points awarded for doing those things. And boy, did I learn quickly that students are not going to be these wonderfully motivated (laughs) pupils that do all of the things on the list ahead of coming to class. So I quickly spoke to colleagues around the department 
and found out about this ed tech tool called PlayPosit. I don't know. Have you guys had any experience with PlayPosit? That no. one I haven't heard of. So PlayPosit is an ed tech tool that you can integrate with a learning management system. We use Moodle on our campus. And you take your video lectures and it embeds questions and prompts within your video lecture. So students can't fast forward and they don't know when these questions are going to pop up. But it's a way to assess how they're doing with the video with the lecture as they're watching it. So sometimes I'll use multiple choice questions. And the upper level classes, I mostly use essay questions because I really want them to delve into the topic a little bit more. I also sprinkle in questions from the readings that they're supposed to do because it's another way to assess that they're actually looking at the text or reading the papers that I've suggested. And then at the end, it's great because you can put in some questions about what concepts did you not understand? What do you want to learn more about? Are there sticking points that are kind of confusing you? And this fed directly into learning about the just-in-time teaching method. So I could have these play pauses that the students had to watch before class, and I set them for midnight the day before. Then I could come in the morning before class, assess how they did on the lecture, and immediately have a lot of information going into the classroom that day for where they're stuck. And I could modify my approach to the learning goals for that day based on how they did on their play posits. And that just changed everything. That made it so much better. And I think from the students' perspectives, they felt more accountable because there were points that were associated to watching these lectures. And then I would come into class and the first thing I would do is sort of go through the questions and the things that they missed and talk to them about it. And it gave this really nice back and forth and it sort of broke the ice a bit because there's always that little awkward start when you get into a classroom, or at least there is for me. And this was an easy way for say, okay, so on the lecture that you guys completed for yesterday, here are some topics that you didn't really understand. So let's go through them together and maybe we can make sure that everyone's on the same page. And that sort of changed the game for me for the flipped classroom model. Going back to the play posit, you can also do the same thing with Camtasia and upload the videos as a SCORM package into Blackboard, Canvas, or other things as well. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Once the students arrived in class, you mentioned that you used a just-in-time teaching approach. How did you structure the class? What would your class generally consist of during the class time? I originally taught on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays for 50 minutes and realized that that was not a long enough time period for us to do what we wanted to do. So I switched to a Tuesday, Thursday class so I could have a full hour and 20 minutes with my students twice a week. So typically when students come to class, we have this sort of icebreaker where we go through the lecture material. And sometimes that might take 10 or 15 minutes if there's a concept that the students really need to get for us to do our activity for the day. And then we usually go straight into a prompt for what the activity is going to be. So for example, one of the classes that I teach, my favorite class, junior level class in volcanology, so it's just called Volcanoes. And it's a sneaky class because it's actually a geophysics class. It's very math and physics heavy, but I don't tell the students that when they come in and they do not have an upper level math requirement to take the course. And this was sort of my sneaky way to entrain students that might not realize that they can absolutely do this. So I get a lot of diversity in that class. We'll have communications majors, advertising, education majors as well as the geology majors. The first time I taught the class, 
of the 20 students in the class, only four were geology majors and the other 16 were just spread from throughout the campus. So it was a really cool opportunity to empower students that, yes, you can use math and physics and it's not that intimidating. So we go straight into these activities and every exercise is quantitative. They get real geophysical data from deforming volcanoes, active volcanoes around the world, and they analyze it. And there's a large social sciences component because I want them to think about the societal impacts of those volcanoes and potentials for eruption and how it might impact the communities that are around the volcanoes. And then also that communication through way of how as we as scientists communicate hazards to local populations. So they have a lot of different levels of work that they're doing. Almost every class period is done in a jigsaw manner where they're broken into small groups and each small group is going to be working on some component that at the end of the class, we're going to come together and discuss. I typically start the prep of the activity. For example, okay, today we're going to be looking at this type of volcano and maybe it's a stratovolcano and we're going to look at Mount St. Helens in the US. We're going to look at Mount Fuji in Japan. We're going to look at Ruapeyu in New Zealand. But each group will have a different volcano and they're going to look at data directly from that volcano and the surrounding areas and do a small activity that helps them to understand that data set, the type of physical processing. And then at the end of class, each of the groups will come back together and present what they found to the group. And then there's some larger full classroom group discussion questions that we'll go over as a class. So... It's usually the activity I hope will take about 45 minutes, but it really depends. I try to keep them short in my mind, but then oftentimes they go a little bit long if the students get really excited about it. One of the things I think is really good about the flipped class is that I'm able to do so much more than I was able to do in sort of a classical passive learning model. And with that came a lot of grading. And so the first term I did flipped classes, I had not learned about light grading and was buried in the amount of feedback I was trying to provide to students. So if we had play posits a couple times a week, we had these activities twice a week, they had additional outside of class things, they had midterms. So it was unreal the amount of grading. So I was very fortunate to find out about light grading and how to maybe back up the amount of feedback and time I'm spending on student papers. And that really helped a lot. So I think that one of the things that has to be said in conjunction with this particular model is you need to do some sort of light grading because there's no way to stay on top of everything without losing sleep. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how you adjusted your grading in specific ways? Originally, when I did the play posits, again, there are a lot of essay questions. So I would take a lot of time to really think through the answers to the essay questions and making sure that I'd have a rubric for what I wanted, what points I wanted them to hit on each of these essay questions. And I was very detailed about when they miss things and providing feedback. And so as I shifted into a light grading model, I would do that for the first couple of weeks. And then from then on out, it would just be a quick glance, like, did they hit this? And I wouldn't spend as much time with the subtleties of, yes, they wrote out a great answer and they hit all these points. And then for just the in-class exercises, the thing I started doing too 
was originally I had each student turn in their own exercise, even in the groups, because I wanted to see their individual contribution. But I recognized that there was enough individual assessment through the play posits and through their midterms that having that additional individual assessment through the group activity really wasn't necessary. And it wasn't really contributing to their success in the class. By having individual assessment on the group assignments, it wasn't helping students who were falling behind do better. And so after that point, I started allowing the groups to just do their presentations as a Google slideshow. And then I would have their Google slideshow. So basically in the jigsaw puzzle, they go into their group, they work on this presentation. And when we come back together, each group shows a Google slide or Google doc of what they've been working on and they present it to the entire class. At that point, I just say that's good enough. And I don't require that each student then hands in the answers to the discussion questions in their own words. So little things like that made it a lot more tangible for me. Whereas before when I was having each student providing responses for the discussion questions, and then on top of that, having the discussion in the class, it was just too much. But I admit that it came from a perspective that I was concerned that some students would not fully contribute to the group activity. And I wanted to try to hold people accountable, but it really was a little bit too much micromanaging. And I think that the groups ended up holding each other accountable in their own ways without needing me to sit and say, okay, everyone needs to answer this question. The other thing I really like about the small groups is that I've noticed that it brings out a lot of discussion from students that otherwise do not participate in the larger group discussions. And one of my favorite things in those small group activities is going around the room. And I typically spend a couple minutes with each group and I just sort of keep roving around the classroom. And it helps me to get to know individual students a lot better. And it also gives them so much more confidence to talk to me. And I feel like it's made me more approachable as an instructor because they've had these smaller group interactions with me where I've sat at their table and said, oh, that's a great idea. Or, oh, have you thought about this? And those just little micro interactions really build up and it creates a student population where they feel more comfortable in the class. And then by the end of the term, I feel like as a class, it's much more energetic and engaged. And even in those larger groups discussions, some of the quieter students that you would never have heard from previously are starting to speak out. And oftentimes with the encouragement of their group members, that's another thing I really like about the small group setup. Could you give us some feel for the size of your classes? How large are they typically? My typical class size is 20. I usually keep the classes up to 40 students because that's what the flexible classroom configurations will hold. One of the interesting things about the flipped class is that the first day of class, I do tell the students, these are my expectations. This is a flipped class you've signed up for. And we go through what that model looks like. And I always have students drop after that first day. That's kind of fascinating for me. Maybe it would be nice to follow up and find out, did you drop because of the model that was being used in the class? Or did you drop because of schedule conflict? Or were there other things going on? But I typically end up with 20 students that end up through the entire term. I teach mostly upper level, junior, senior level courses. So I've not had the opportunity to try these techniques in the large introductory level classes. I think most of them should scale pretty nicely, except for the grading aspect of it. Yeah, I think that were it to be done in an introductory class, you probably would want to have some TAs involved as well, just to help 
I recognize that other instructors do these amazing small group activities and these large format lecture classes. But I think having the logistical setup so that you can walk around and interact with groups, maybe not every group every time, but enough so that you can hit most of the groups once in a while would be imperative because I really think that the students greatly benefit from that almost one-on-one interactivity with the professor. I teach a class typically between three and 420 students in the fall, and I do wander around and I've found something similar. I don't get to sit with each group, but the students that I do interact with become dramatically more likely to stop by and ask questions or if they see me in the hallway to come up and just say hello. So those individual interactions can make a big difference in practice. I think it's just a far more efficient way to give feedback as well. You can disrupt misconceptions and reframe things for small groups. And then if you stop by a couple of groups and hear the same kinds of misconceptions, you can address those more holistically to the whole group. I found that works really well for me too. Yeah, absolutely. And I always get tickled when I see that. I mean, this isn't necessarily a good thing, but when there are lots of groups that have the same misconception, because it means that there's something that or a piece of information that I have not given the students or something that's missing in how we've set up the activity. And that's always kind of nice to see. And it helps me to redevelop how I'm going to teach it the next time. So I really do like that. Because otherwise, if I were just lecturing, I would never realize that there was this piece of information that nobody got until the exam comes back. And at that point, it's sometimes too late. That's one of the advantages of a just-in-time teaching approach. It allows you to focus your class time on the things that students are struggling with and to skip over the things that they already understand. So it lets you use your class time much more efficiently. At the end of one of those class periods or even during that class period, I jot down what those things are so that if it's a while between each semester when you teach it again, (laughs) that you don't forget what those are because sometimes you can lose track. So coming up with a system to routinely check in on those things can be really helpful. Yeah, a journaling effort or something. Yeah. And I saw you also do something called Trash Kano. (laughs) Yes, Trash Kano. Trash Kano is an activity that we do late in the term once the weather gets nice. In the class, we talk about different styles of eruptions. And one of the styles that we get to later in the class is explosive eruptions. And Trash Kano is a demonstration that was developed by my colleagues at Colgate, Karen Harp, Denny Geis, and Allison Colazar. And they basically developed this experiment where you take a trash can and you fill it up about two thirds to three quarters of the way filled with water. And if you submerge a two liter bottle with liquid nitrogen in it, that bottle represents a pressurized magma chamber and it ends up rupturing because liquid nitrogen is boiling at ambient temperature. And so the two liter bottle ruptures and that water creates a column that sprays into the air. So for this activity, the students do some calculations of plume height so they can use their iPhones to measure the angle of the trajectory of the water. And they can say, okay, the plume went this high. And then they can do some back calculations to discuss what sort of pressurization caused that amount of uplift to the water. And then we also put styrofoam balls of different sizes and shapes into the trash can, and they can make isopack maps. Basically, how we actually map explosive eruptions, where we take the different grain sizes and we create a map of how far the different grain sizes spread from the center of eruption. It's a fun day outside. This past year, we did it in the rain, which was rather interesting to see how rainfall dampens the amount of (laughs) distance the styrofoam can spread. I'm not sure that we'd want to do that in the rain again, but it was an interesting experiment. 
But yeah, we do a lot of little things like that so that the students can take their concepts, the actual equations that we're working on in class and apply them in the tactile physical way. Trish, do you use consistent teams throughout the semester or do you rotate how your groups are formed? I've done it a couple different ways. I've now had the opportunity to teach my flipped classes two to three times each at this point. And some terms I do let them switch around and some terms I keep it consistent. And I found that overall, it works a little better when they're consistent teams the whole way. I feel like the students build a lot of teamwork and camaraderie with their groups. But I don't know, I try to take it by a term by term basis, because I have had situations where the students are eager to switch around and meet other members of the classroom. We do this a little bit with our jigsaw discussions. So for example, we do a role-playing exercise where each group is a volcano monitoring agency. So in your monitoring agency, you have a volcanologist, you have a seismologist, you have a geodesist, you have a communication specialist, but then all of the communication specialists from each group will have to get together and work as a team for one of the activities. And all the geodesists will have to get together and work as a team for the activities and then bring them back to their initial group. So they do get some chances to interact with one another through these, I don't know, is it a jigsaw puzzle within a jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> I'm not sure how you describe it, but they do get these opportunities to move around to other groups. But that's something that I still am thinking a lot about. I think you had a guest on recently, Bacon Burdick. In his, he talked about how sometimes he likes to let the students all switch groups all the time because then they get to know everybody in the class. And then sometimes he keeps them all together. It seems like a lot of people do different things with this. I don't have a great method yet, but I do tend to go on a sort of term by term basis and get a feel for the culture of the class and how people are melding. I do find sometimes when you do the consistent groups, it can happen that the group tends to congeal really well, and then it lifts up all of the students in the group. And so people attend class more regularly, and they're much more engaged. But I have seen it happen where groups have sort of fallen apart because one or two members just aren't attending regularly and they're really not committed or engaged. And that becomes difficult. And then you really kind of need to reshuffle a little bit. We talked about that in an episode in early October with Kristen Kreil when she was talking about team-based learning where there are persistent teams. And one of the things she suggested is it's really important to form teams that are constructed to be balanced so that you don't run into that. But there are some advantages of having persistent teams. But if it's a persistent dysfunctional team with people missing, then that could be problematic. I think a lot depends on the nature of the activities. If you're going to have persistent activities like in team-based learning, having well-defined teams may be useful. But for other types of activities that vary class to class, it may not matter as much. Yeah, I think there's certainly advantages to both. I've had experiences where we're doing long-term projects, so doing some preliminary shorter activities with those groups that they're going to have for their long-term projects can be really helpful in getting those team gel before it really matters. And I've also had experience doing persistent teams when I've gamified a classroom, and that actually works really well in getting people to hold each other accountable and be competitive. So I've had really good luck when I've done that as well. You've also received a lot of grants for your research. Yeah, I'm in a fortunate position that my primary position is research. So I don't actually teach that much. I only teach two classes a year. So I do try to find ways to integrate all of the exciting research that my group is doing into what we do in the classroom setting. 
but not just my classes, the other classes in the department too. We teach a hundred level course in oceanography. And a lot of my research centers around seagoing expeditions and collecting geophysical data at sea to understand submarine volcanoes. So we try to bring that experience back into the classroom for our introductory level students. Especially in a landlocked state of Illinois, many of our students have never seen the ocean, they've never been to the beach, and they don't really have a concept for why would scientists be at sea collecting data and what are scientists doing in our marine settings. So bringing that into our introductory costumes, I think, is really critical. So the big push there was I was chief scientist of an expedition we've just wrapped up. We had two seagoing missions to the Eastern Pacific. It was called the Oasis Expedition. And we we're investigating a line of seamounts on the seafloor. So these are volcanoes that have been active over the past million years. And we were using a submarine to collect data, collect rock samples from the seafloor. And it started because I have a young daughter and I was going to be gone for about 45 days and I wanted her to feel connected to me while I was away. We don't really have great internet at sea, as you can imagine. So it's hard to continue to feel connected with loved ones at home. So I decided with the help of my husband to create a YouTube channel that would chronicle our life at sea and link back to my daughter's classroom and some local schools that they could watch what scientists were doing. And then we also ended up using those videos in the introductory courses on campus at a higher level so that students could see sort of the hands-on of what we do when we're at sea. But yeah, it started out predominantly as me wanting to stay connected to my then six-year-old while I was sailing and became a really great way to provide outreach to a broader learning ecosystem. <laughs> so lots of people throughout the community. I think it might seem more obvious that students in a landlocked state don't have experience with marine life. But at the same time, I think that our students don't have much experience with many professional experiences and what it's like to be in any kind of industry or research setting. So I think that that same methodology works in a lot of circumstances to give students exposure to what it might actually be like to be a professional in the field. Yeah, and I really liked that sort of informal vlogging aspect. So these videos were very informal. I had a vlogging camera and I basically just filmed myself doing things. And I remember at one point, my husband sent me this email that basically said, wow, you look really tired. Are you doing okay? Because I just was like, all right, it's 4.30 in the morning. We're getting ready to do some scientific stuff. I'll put my camera on me and film what we're doing. But yeah, it's an exhausting process because it's a 24-7 operation when you're out at sea collecting data. You have this facility for 30, 40 days, whatever it is, and you want to use every second of it to get as much information as possible. But I think that's important because a lot of people don't know like, oh, that's what an ocean scientist, well, what my particular <laughs> volcanology-centered ocean scientist does for research. And then the other arm of my research program is very much in volcano hazards. So that feeds directly into the volcano geophysics courses I teach because my group works on developing forecasting mechanisms and algorithms for taking volcano monitoring data and providing monitoring agencies with information about how volcanoes are evolving. And we have a lot of monitoring agency partners that we're working with to try to provide some 
new quantitative methods for assessing volcanic unrest. So these are things that we're thinking about every day, but we certainly can infuse them into classes on volcanology and volcano geophysics. Having that video channel would also let you do some time shifting where much of the work that you're doing takes place during breaks when classes wouldn't be in session, and it still allows you to bring this into your own classes as well. I've watched several of your videos, and they're really good. (laughs) We'll share a link to those in the show notes. Oh, great. Thanks. (laughs) They haven't been updated for a few years, but yeah, I think the asynchronous aspect is really cool. One of the things that we struggled with when we were first doing these expeditions was we were trying to schedule within reason because it's really hard to schedule your ship time because you're working with all the other scientists that are utilizing the facility. But we're trying to schedule them such that students could participate synchronously with what we were doing. So while we're out at sea, we're sending back Q&As and doing videos. But what we found was that you could still use all of this information after the fact. So students have been benefiting from these videos for the last three, four years, which is really fantastic. And I think that it's something that a lot of field scientists could take advantage of. For example, the Antarctic field season is when everyone's off for holiday. But perhaps if they're doing these videos, that they could bring them back and create learning modules for students to see more of what is it like to be a scientist working in Antarctica during the Antarctic summer. And not in a documentary way. I felt like one of the things that I really wanted to do was provide that informal feeling for students so that they could look at that and say, wow, I actually feel like I could do that. And I could see myself in that role. Whereas when you have that documentary shininess, it's harder to imagine that it's not this esoteric thing that you could never aspire to be. So I wanted to show like, yes, we're up at 4.30 in the morning and we're tired. Yeah, I like that. I think you're right that that polish sometimes makes it seem really not approachable to students or that they don't belong in the field or they don't belong in the discipline. But if you're showing that realness in that authentic moment through your own lens, it's really beneficial to students. And I can imagine this working in just about any context, actually, to help students understand the day in the life that they might be pursuing. Yeah, absolutely. It would be so helpful, too, for K through 12 students, because a lot of times they have no idea. Geology is an interesting discipline in that we're kind of a found discipline. Students usually come to college thinking, oh, I'm going to go do chemistry or I'm going to do physics or engineering. And geology is not really on students' radar, but then they start to see how they can apply chemistry, physics, engineering, and math all in one discipline, and they sort of gravitate towards us. But we don't get a lot of freshmen into our major. But maybe if K-12 students saw what geologists do on a daily basis and what a career looks like, they might say, oh, yeah, that's a major I could be interested in. There's a lot of disciplines and careers that students have no idea exist. The lens in which they see the world is largely through whatever classes they've been taking. So it's like, the world is math, English, science, these really broad categories of things. Mm-hmm. And they see it from the textbook perspective as a well-defined body of knowledge that they just have to learn or memorize and not as an active, ongoing endeavor. And those videos you've created and these types of connections that you're making for students help open up that possibility to them. As part of the Oasis Project, you use a variety of social media, including Twitter, Reddit, and I believe you did a Reddit Ask Me Anything. Could you tell us a little bit about your use of social media for this project? One thing that we learned very quickly is that the internet on the ship was not great. So the day we did the Reddit Ask Me Anything, it was a day that the Alvin submarine was on the seafloor collecting samples. So we knew the ship could stay in one spot. 
So it's sort of like having an aerial antenna on your old TV and you're trying to like bend it in just the right way so you have a good connection. So we were able to set the ship in one location and then rotate it so that the satellite was (laughs) in the right spot so we could get on Reddit. And then we had to like shut down everything using the internet and we all crowded around one computer. (laughs) and did the ask me anything. And I think it was a really good experience. One of the things that cracked me up is that there was a scientist on a sister ship in the Northern Pacific that responded to one of our questions and said, hey, we're up here on the RV Armstrong. (laughs) Hello. So yeah, I think that the Reddit ask me anything was a great experience. It was mostly done by the graduate students on the ship. I was sort of running around doing other things, but it was a great way, again, to provide outreach. It gives you a demographic that otherwise you may not have interacted with, which I think is important. Sounds like another sneaky method, like not telling students (laughs) that your volcano class has math in it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. We always end the podcast by asking, what are you doing next? One of the things that we're working on right now, as I mentioned, we've collected a lot of video at sea. And on the last expedition, we collected a lot of virtual reality 3D video with GoPro Fusion. So we use GoPro Fusions to collect really nice 3D video on the ship. So things like how the scientists were cleaning tube worms that were collected from hydrothermal vents and how they're processing rocks and just the day-to-day life on the ship. So we collected all this virtual reality video, and now we're working with colleagues in the CITL, the Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning on campus, to develop VR modules for introductory classes. And this has been a really crazy learning experience for me because one of our goals is to give these experiences to students that would not necessarily ever have a chance to go to sea or to do this type of work. But building and structuring the learning goals for these VR experiences is really difficult. And I didn't realize how big of a leap it would be from just the video content and lectures to creating a VR structured activity for students. And there's some really cool things they're doing here on campus. The medical school has been doing a lot with VR techniques for med students and different procedures in VR. And there's an archaeology professor on campus who's been using it to like simulated archaeological dig using VR. So we're working with some really amazing educators, and hopefully that will come out with some fascinating modules for our students and upcoming offerings of our oceanography class. But that's sort of the big thing that we're doing right now. I'm kind of excited to see how that will turn out. We talked a little bit by email about you and your husband coming back on later to talk about some of that work. So for our listeners, We will be revisiting this sometime in the next couple of months, I think. Yeah, hopefully. We have a paper in review right now where we look at asynchronous linkages to field expeditions and ways that you can collect videos and content while you're in the field. Sort of non-disciplinary specific, of course, we're looking at marine sciences, but again, you could use it in other fields and how you could bring that back to produce learning modules for your classrooms. Sounds really exciting. We're looking forward to hearing more about that as well. Thing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much for having me. 
It's been a pleasure to talk to you guys. And I've really appreciated your podcast. It's been so inspirational to me and my work. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun for us too. We get to talk to people in depth. Normally when we gave workshops, we'd hear little bits and snippets of what people on campus were doing. But being able to explore things like this is so much more valuable for us. And we get to learn about all kinds of different disciplines too, which is really exciting. I think what's so cool, it's exactly what you said in your 100th podcast that a lot of times faculty can't go to those workshops. So giving them a way to listen to the podcast while they're commuting or traveling is just awesome. It's very, very cool. Before going to see, I always load up my phone and computer with all the podcasts I can get my hands on. Because once you're there, you're there. That's pretty much it. (laughs) Just download the entire catalog. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Brittany Jones and Kiara Montero.